0: Hi, I'm Randa, and here are a few things that are coming up at Crossroads. This is the last weekend to register for Art Smarts Camp. The cost is $40, which provides everything your camper will need to get through the week. Art Smarts is a week that introduces campers to the world of creative arts. They'll have hands-on experience with music, art, drama, and even creative writing. This is a great week to help identify and grow talents within our kids. You can register online at cccgo.com events. If you're new to Crossroads or simply looking for a way to get connected and learn more about your Crossroads family, check out Starting Point. Starting Point's a class that meets on the first Sunday of the month at 10.15 a.m. and the third Saturday at 6.45 p.m. During this casual 35-minute session, you'll learn some of the ways you can get connected and meet other members of your Crossroads family. Don't delay. Join us at the next Starting Point on July 3rd. Childcare is provided, so stop on in and get to know Crossroads. We're so excited to meet you. To RSVP, just go online to cccgo.com slash next steps. For more information on these events and the many other things that are happening here at Crossroads, you can check your bulletin or go to cccgo.com.
1: Several years ago an Austrian professor designed a set of goggles that upon wearing them completely flipped your eyesight upside down. He chose one of his students to experiment with these goggles by wearing them for an extended period of time. And inside the goggles itself were little specially placed mirrors that flipped the light causing what was on the bottom to become the top and the top to become the bottom. And you can imagine how difficult this probably was to adjust to wearing these things at first. The student noted how difficult it was for him to simply grab an object that was before him or to walk around a chair in his living room and and to walk down a stairwell was quite a challenge for him. I mean, how weird would it be to pour your coffee out in the morning and rather than it going down into the cup, it flows upwards or when striking a match, the smoke doesn't go up, it descends towards the ground. And and so this was quite an adjustment for the student when wearing them for the very first time. But the experiment uh, realized that after about 10 days or so, something really interesting took place. For the student who was wearing the goggles, Everything was right side up for him. Everything was normal for him after enough time. In other words, the goggles didn't prevent him from doing anything in life. In fact, he became so comfortable and aware and even familiar with this reversed world that the professor noted, my student can ride a motorcycle while driving down this street while wearing the goggles at the exact same time. Any takers in here? Yeah, that's what I thought. And for all honest with ourselves, I mean, life in God's kingdom kind of seems that way. It feels a little bit upside down and backwards at first, right? I mean, following Jesus seems strange. He says some things that are a little bit counterintuitive and countercultural to us. And, and maybe that's why, whenever Jesus would talk about this greater kingdom that he provides, he would say things like, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And, And so in essence, what Jesus was telling the crowds whenever he would say that is, hey, if you want to follow me, then it's going to mean that you have to rewire how you view your money, how you view different relationships, how you view your family, your sexuality, or even your thought life throughout the course of the day. That's what it's like to be a part of my kingdom. Now, if you're here today and you're wondering, well, what in the world is God's kingdom all about? I mean, what are we talking about here? Well, in this series, we've been kind of anchoring ourselves to a common definition. And in the kingdom of God, we've been defining like this. It's, it's the reign of God where all creation is reclaimed and restored. Now, even if you've never been to church before, if this is your first time, or you don't even know who this Jesus guy is, you don't need me to tell you that something is off and fractured and broken in this world. And and so we naturally long for something greater, for something better, right? And and so could it be that this kingdom is what we were ultimately designed for? It's what we were created for from the beginning. Now, sometimes there's this misconception in the church that Jesus wants to keep you from joy. Have you ever heard that before? And, and you might refer to these Christians as the frozen chosen. You know what I mean? <laughs> that if you're experiencing fulfillment and satisfaction and joy and happiness in life, then you must be sinning. You must be doing something wrong, right? And, and the problem with that is that whenever that is our perspective of Jesus, whenever we ground ourselves to that belief, that perspective, as author Thomas Merton said... He said that merely dens our humanity our view of Jesus instead of setting us free to develop richly in all its capacities under the influence of grace and so could it be that we were wired for gladness we were wired for joy for this deep-rooted satisfaction in life researcher Neil Plantinga goes so far to say that our human capacity for addiction reveals that we were actually created for ecstasy now not the drug he says but joy and so could it be that that we actually have this hunger for more that this this desire for something better is actually a hint that we were created to be a part of a world that is that is not here and another kingdom right now here's the problem though we take that desire for satisfaction and we try to fill it ourselves don't we And so all of a sudden we take this drive for fulfillment and we become our own gods determining what is right and and what is wrong. And so we go and run after pleasure at all costs regardless of what it may cost us or those around us. And so in this series, we've been looking at God's kingdom and the joy that is provided in this, in this kingdom. And, and we've been doing this by looking at a message that Jesus preached, perhaps his most famous message he ever communicated. It's when he stood up on a hillside one day and began telling people about this kingdom that he provides and what citizenship in his kingdom really looks like. And, and so in this series, we've been beginning with that message that Jesus preached and then kind of going from there. But we're gonna do things a little bit differently today. All right, we're gonna end by looking at a segment of the Sermon on the Mount towards the end of today Uh, but we're going to start by looking at another kind of moment that Jesus had with some people when explaining to them what it is that he offers and provides And, and so if you have your Bibles or Bible app I want you to go ahead and turn to the New Testament book of John all right it goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, All right, and it's uh, towards the back fourth of your Bible. If you don't own a Bible, there's a black one right in front of you. Take that home with you. It is our gift to you, and if you're worshiping with us back in the chapel, it's on that table right as you walked in uh, a moment ago. As you're turning there, understand that this, book, the Gospel of John, serves as a biography on the life of Jesus. John was a, perhaps the closest friend to Jesus throughout his life, all right, and so what John did was he recorded what Jesus did, he listened to his teachings, and, and, he, came, and he gave a very well-documented report of, of this guy named Jesus who claimed to be God, and, and so where we pick up today in chapter 6 is a moment that Jesus had with a crowd of people when explaining to them what it is that, that he offers. Now you're gonna notice, just understand this up front, that Jesus makes a lot of references in this kind of dialogue with the crowds that day to, he makes a lot of references to Judaism and Israel's past. And so to fully understand what it is that Christ offers, we're gonna kind of need to tie both worlds together, Judaism and Christianity, all right, the the, the past and, and what Jesus offers us today. And so where we pick up in our text today, verse 28 And Jesus had thousands of people around him. They were beginning to notice that there was something different about him, that he could be from God. So verse 28 says this, then they asked him, Jesus, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one whom he has sent. Now, these people knew that they were broken, and the only solution for them was to be reconciled to their creator. And so when they asked Jesus what works they had to do to please God, in other words, how do we earn acceptance Christ, right? Their expectation was for Jesus to just list off a bunch of commands and and rules. Instead, Jesus, what we see here in this moment is that he invited them to believe and to trust who he was, Now, this was a little bit upside down for this audience. This was a little bit confusing for them. And Jesus basically told them, hey, look, you know what? You're not righteous. You can't do anything to earn a relationship with your creator. You personally can't satisfy this hunger yourself. Here, these people were looking for a way to restore hope in themselves, but then Jesus totally flipped their paradigm by telling them that your only hope can be found in me. You see, this crowd failed to realize that it was impossible for them to fix their problem. You know why? Because they were the problem. Now, this is not popular to say, but that's true for us today as well. We can't fix ourselves. You know why? Because we are the issue. Now, here's what God has been teaching me lately. If the biggest sinner that I know is not me, then I don't know myself too well, right? And if you don't know, and if the biggest sinner that you know isn't you, then you don't know yourself very well either. This is why one writer in Scripture, a guy by the name of Paul, wrote to a church by saying, hey, you know what? I am the chief of all sinners. Paul was basically saying, I am so overwhelmed by my brokenness, I am so aware of my sin that I don't even have, a, I don't even have the time to look at the sin of others. And so let me ask you this. What if real satisfaction can only happen through experiencing Desperation. I mean, what if true fulfillment can only occur when we are deeply aware of our brokenness? Let's pick up in verse 30. Jesus continues to talk. He says, so, so they asked him, the crowd asked Jesus, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? They asked. Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And, and so, what you have here is a bunch of people demanding for signs from Jesus that would inspire them to believe in him. But what's ironic about this is that not even a day before, Jesus had miraculously fed thousands of them by multiplying five pieces of bread and two fish. I mean, what bigger sign could these people want? It's as if these people wanted so much evidence for their faith that they were trying to eliminate as much risk as possible. Now notice again in, in verse 31 how Jesus alluded to the, their ancestors eating uh, manna in the wilderness here. And he says, as it, is written, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. You see, thousands of years before, the Jewish people were enslaved in Egypt. And so God used a man by the name of Moses to deliver them and rescue them and, and bring the Israelites out of bondage. Now, you see, the Jewish people were delivered from slavery and were told that they were going to be taken to this territory that they had been longing for, simply called the Promised Land. It was a land that they had dreamed about for a really long time. But you see, here's the thing. The Promised Land required that the Israelites leave behind what was comfortable and familiar to them and venture through a territory called the wilderness or the desert for 40 long years. I mean, you would think that their leader after one year would at least stop and ask for directions. You know what I mean? But Moses was a guy, and so he just kept going. You know what I mean? (laughs) But understand that the territory for the Israelites, the, the wilderness, the desert, is a place of confusion for them. It was a place of, of frustration. They, they wondered if God had overlooked them. They sensed that, that we, we're just wandering about aimlessly. We lack purpose here. I mean, what, what are we really doing? And it tested their patience. And the reality is a lot of us, we probably walk in here today feeling like I'm, I'm in the wilderness. I'm in the desert a little bit. I'm, I'm waiting for my boyfriend to commit to me and finally put a ring on my finger, right? <laughs> or maybe you wonder how long it's going to be until you finally get pregnant or and perhaps you question how long you can continue working in your job and serving under a boss who is just extremely critical of you. You see, these seasons of our life, of our life, test our character and they reveal the source of where we uh, they reveal the source of our satisfaction in life. And so again, can it ultimately satisfy? In verse 31, Jesus said that God provided the Jews with bread from heaven during this time. And and again, he was referencing the moment when the Israelites were in the middle of the desert and they complained to Moses. I want you to take a look at this instance in Exodus 16. It says this, in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. They were the leaders at the time. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. The glory days, Moses. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. And that's really important bread. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, God says, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. Now, by brief show fans, anybody in here just love hanging around people who gripe and complain? <laughs> I mean, nobody ever says, hey, I, I want to go to Mike's house later today because I just love to hear him criticize other people and complain. Right? Nobody says that, right? And so you would think that the impatience of the Jewish people would cause God to grow increasingly impatient with them as well. But again, the upside down perspective of God is he does just the opposite. Instead, the Lord told Moses, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to rain down bread from heaven for you and your people each morning. And by doing so, God was reassuring his people that even in the wandering, even in the waiting, even in the impatient, confusing circumstances of life, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to give you not just what you want, but God was saying, I'm going to give you what you need. Now, in this series, we've talked a lot about how God's kingdom is, is here, but it's really not here yet. It's not in its fullest form yet. We're, we're kind of on a journey, but we haven't yet arrived at that destination. Now, what's interesting is that this life as a citizen in God's kingdom right now is, is kind of like that wilderness was for the Jews. Because of Jesus, we've been delivered from the bondage of slavery, which maybe represented Egypt for the Jewish people. And our new promised land is what the Bible calls the new heaven and the new earth. And so right now, this life, this world, 2016, it feels a little bit like that wilderness, doesn't it? It feels like the desert. And so part of living in this dark and broken world is experiencing a deep longing. French philosopher Blaise Pascal said, all men seek happiness. And we all have our own way of doing this. And if you look closely enough, traces of hunger for satisfaction is is all around us. Back in February, one of my favorite bands, Coldplay, performed during the halftime show during the Super Bowl. It was a really good performance for the most part. Well, kind of the pinnacle crescendo moment of the performance that day was at the very end when the camera kind of zoomed out of the crowd and all of a sudden you saw this three-worded message that the thousands of people had been orchestrating throughout the course of the performance. And the message was this. I have a picture of it up here. You know, believe in love, right? And that sounds like a good message, doesn't it? I mean, who doesn't want to believe in love? I mean, the Bible tells us that, that God is love. Jesus commands us to love one another, right? But could it be that the message during the halftime show simply reveals a culture that is hungering and starving for love, but is settling for something far lesser? Now, we know that the term loved here in that moment was just another way to advocate for tolerance and and marital equality. And and so could it be that we live in a time where people are hungering and satisfying for something greater, for something lesser, but they are trying to satisfy this hunger themselves? I mean, could it be that we are drinking from wells thinking that we are going to find satisfaction, but the wells are only going to leave us more parched than we began with? You see, here's the thing attempting to satisfy our hunger ourselves only makes us emptier attempting to satisfy our hunger ourselves only makes us emptier and isn't this some of our stories right now, I love hearing how God has been moving in so many of your lives. I mean, God is just blessing this church in tremendous ways. And I love hearing about stories of, of how God has been moving. One of my favorite things to do as a pastor is to simply stand backstage and talk with you before you're baptized. And, and if I've talked with you before, you know I've just asked you one simple question, and it's this. That, that why have you chosen to make Jesus your Lord and Savior in your life? Now, typically what people tell me after I ask that question, there's a pattern that happens between the different stories that are told. It kind of goes like this. You you realize that that you were hungry, that you needed fulfillment and satisfaction, and so you went out and, and tried to fill that hunger and satisfaction on your own. Now, typically that's not when people hit rock bottom and see and find their need for Jesus, No, people hit rock bottom when they realize they're hungry, when they try to satisfy that hunger themselves, and only to realize that what it is that they've been trying to satisfy their life with only left them emptier and hungrier. And again, isn't that some of our stories? Maybe for you, you you were lonely, and so you found yourself in a relationship with a boyfriend that you really didn't want to be in, and you found yourself doing things that you told yourself you would never do, or... Or perhaps you found yourself depressed and so you resorted to meth looking for an escape, right? Or it could be that you were searching for significance and so you got addicted to your work. And the next thing you knew, your work took precedence over what was really important in life. You became a workaholic. I'll never forget, a couple years ago, I took my oldest son, John Ryman, to PetSmart. He loves dogs, and so uh, whenever we go out to buy dog food, I always bring him with me, because usually at PetSmart, uh, people walk around with their dogs on a leash. And so we're walking around, making our way through different aisles, and all of a sudden, he spots one of his favorite dogs on the cover of a magazine. It was a Golden Retriever, and he said, Hey, Daddy, look at that Golden, look at that Golden. He was just mesmerized by this photo. Well, just at the exact same time, someone walked around the corner of the aisle and they had a golden with them, a real-life golden, that looked almost identical to the one that was on the cover of the magazine. And so all of a sudden, I find myself trying to convince John Ryman to look at the real golden versus the golden that was on the the cover of the magazine. I said, hey, JR, look, here's a real one. But for the life of me, I couldn't get him to not look at the photo on the magazine. And, And so all of a sudden, in that moment, he was exchanging an opportunity for something greater, for something lesser. You see, the fake became more important and distracted him from what was real and genuine. And I think that's how a lot of us, we approach our satisfaction. We, we settle for something that is far lesser. And when we try to satisfy ourselves, we don't realize it. But it's because we can't even imagine that something more fulfilling is out there for us. Author C.S. Lewis says it like this. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. Lewis then says, we are far too easily pleased. And so is it possible that in our effort to fulfill our hunger ourselves, we settle for stuff that only makes us emptier? Look at what Jesus continues to say to these hungry people that day. Verse 32, Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who who gives you the true bread from heaven. Again, that's important. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Now the people asked for the food that they knew would bring them lasting satisfaction. They were tired of temporary fixes. They were tired of looking at the photo when perhaps the real thing was in front of them. Verse 35, then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Now there's a lot of symbolism in what Jesus said here. When Christ used that phrase, I am, right there, all right, the Jews would have connected the dots the phrase i am is a title that god gave himself all the way back in exodus chapter 3 now for the longest time just being straight with you i never understood why god referred to himself as i am i thought god couldn't you be in, couldn't you have been a little bit more creative here <laughs> i mean that didn't even make sense right i am yet that's kind of the point a name or a title that God would have given himself would have reduced the sovereign creator of the universe down to an object who had limitations and restrictions. Instead, when God told Moses, I am who I am, he was saying, I am free to be and to act as I want. You see, God was, God is, and God will always be. It's as if God was assuring his people when saying, I am, that he would be with them in their time of need and in their time of sorrow. Therefore, in this moment, don't miss it, Jesus was saying, I I am he, I am God. And then he says, I, I am the bread of life that will never cause hunger or thirst for those who trust him. Now, for the first century audience, that they would have, again, connected the dots Um, Bread was one of the more significant pieces of food in a meal after a covenant had been made. A covenant was a formal agreement between two people, two tribes, or, or two nations. Now, typically during a covenant ceremony, an animal was cut into two pieces and the individual making the covenant establishing the covenant pursuing the covenant would walk in between the carcasses would walk in between the two pieces of the animal the two halves of the body parts and by doing so he was saying to the other person to the other party to the other nation if I break my promise if I exit this covenant may this happen to my body may I be slaughtered just like this animal You see, then the last part of the covenant ceremony was when both parties shared a meal together. Now, the two most significant aspects of the meal was the wine, which symbolized the blood from the dead animal, and the bread, which represented the flesh, reminding both parties of the seriousness of the deal, the seriousness of what had just taken place. And so for these people, Jesus was first talking to the mention of bread, instantly would have triggered memories of the different moments that God had made covenants with their ancestors but here's the thing every covenant that God made with the Jewish people in the past was a foreshadowing of a better lasting covenant that he would make with everyone everywhere you see, the old covenants that God would make in the Old Testament were temporary. They, they didn't really bring about satisfaction and fulfillment. And so when Jesus said, I am the bread of life, he was declaring that he had arrived to fulfill a more satisfying covenant. And what was so backwards about what Jesus was saying here? Rather than an animal dying, it would be Jesus' body that would be torn so that people could have peace with God again. And so Jesus is saying, hey, if you take me up on this deal, you can quit feasting on junk food. I mean, follow me and you'll you'll never hunger again. You'll always be satisfied. And, And so here's the good news for us today. It's this, an awareness of our hunger creates an opportunity for us to be filled for good. It hurts at first that we realize we can't Give ourselves what we know we need and want, But an awareness of our hunger creates an opportunity for us to be filled again. You see, King Jesus, whether you know it or not, is who you were created to be connected to. Our souls were made in the image of God for the image of God. But when we choose to live a life apart from God, we're going to live in a perpetual state of dissatisfaction. Author John Ortberg says it like this, the ultimate reality behind human dissatisfaction is sinful souls that have been cut off from the God we were made to rest in. He says that's why we were that's why we're dissatisfied. And so what if the answer to your dissatisfaction is the person and the God that you've been running from for a really long time? See, the reality is we were born in a state of dissatisfaction, right? I mean, nobody has to teach you to be dissatisfied. I've never sat my son down and taught him how to be ungrateful right? I mean, I've never had a conversation with my daughter that said, hey, if you don't get your way, here's how you throw a fit, right? I mean, we're born with this draw to to being hungry and to being dissatisfied. Drew Carey once said it like this, do you hate your job? There's a support group for that. It's called everybody. They meet at a bar. (laughs) And so we all kind of have this hunger, this thirst, this longing, right? And so one day Jesus stood up on a hillside and he was announcing of this kingdom that he was providing for people that would bring about this fulfillment that they were ultimately looking for. And and on the hillside that day, one of the very first things that he said can be found in Matthew chapter 5 verse 6. Here's what he said. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled, Jesus says. Now, righteousness is not something that we naturally possess on our own, all right? It's not something that we strive for. You know why? Because sin gets in the way of that. Righteousness is Jesus. It's it's who he is. It's how he lived. The satisfying offer of Christ is not just about releasing us from the penalty of sin that we deserve death, right? But the moment you become a Christian, God places and imputes the righteousness of Christ upon you. This means that we are not only no longer defined by our sin before our creator, but we are actually labeled righteous, whole, new. And why is this important for us today? Well, the one requirement to be a part of God's kingdom is perfection. I mean, total righteousness, total holiness. And the last time I checked, that doesn't describe me, and that doesn't describe you. I mean, I couldn't even make it to church this morning without blowing it, all right? <laughs> and yet Jesus is saying here in this moment, if, if you want in, if you want to be righteous, if you hunger and thirst for lasting satisfaction, if you want acceptance with your creator, then you know what, I've got you covered. In fact, you will be blessed, you will be lifted up, you will be congratulated, you will be praised, Jesus said. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is saying that, that righteousness, it's not a behavior issue, it's a, it's a heart issue. And, and that's why we are transformed from the inside out, not from the outside in. And do you know what the problem is with a message like this? Those of us who need it most, don't think that we need it. Right? We, we think that we're satisfied. We're, we're distracted by other stuff. But I love it what English preacher Charles Spurgeon once said. He said, you will never know the fullness of Christ until you know the emptiness of everything else but Christ. And so life just has a way of forcing us to determine where it is that we stand with our creator, where it is that we stand with Jesus. And so when your world falls apart, here's my question for you, when your world falls apart, Where do you go? I recently came across a journal entry from a guy named Tom Schmidt. Several times a week he would make rounds in a state-run hospital when he first got to know a lady named Mabel. And in his journal, here's what he wrote. He said, the state-run hospital is not a pleasant place to be, It, it is a large, understaffed and overfilled with senile and helpless and lonely people who are just waiting to die. It smells of sickness and stale urine. Schmidt wrote, on one particular day when I was there, I neared the end of this hallway and saw an old woman strapped up in a wheelchair. Her face was an absolute whore. The empty stare and white pupils of her eyes told me that she was blind. The large hearing aid over one ear told me that she was almost deaf. One side of her face was being eaten away by cancer. There was a discolored and and running sore covering one part of her cheek, and it had pushed her nose to one side, dropped down another eye, and, and distorted her jaw so much that what should have been the corner of her mouth was now the bottom of her mouth. He said, Mabel drooled constantly. I was told later that when the new nurses arrived, the supervisors would send them to feed this woman, thinking that that if they could stand the sight of this woman, then they could stand anything in the building. Schmidt said, I also learned that this lady was 89 years old and that she had been there bedridden, sick, blind, nearly deaf and alone for almost 25 years. And when I saw her in the hallway, I put a flower in her hand and I said, here's a flower for you, happy Mother's Day. She held the flower up to her face and tried to smell it and then she spoke and, and to much of my surprise Schmidt said her words although somewhat garbled because of her deformity were obviously produced by a clear mind she said thank you it is lovely but can I give it to somebody else? I, I can't see it you know I'm, I'm blind Mabel said. Schmidt responded by saying of course I. he then pushed her down the hallway and where he could find some more alert patients. He said, I found one and I stopped the chair, Mabel held out the flower and she said, here, this is from Jesus. That's when it began to dawn on me that this woman was no ordinary person, that there was something more to her that I was just longing to know about that I, wanted to, that I wanted to discover. And so later, I wheeled her back to her room and learned more about her history. For the previous two and a half decades, Mabel got weaker and sicker and with constant headaches, backaches, and stomachaches, and then Schmidt said the cancer came too. Mabel and I became friends over the next three years. Some days I would read to her from the Bible and often when I would pause, she would continue reciting the passage of scripture from memory, word for word. For Mabel, these were not merely exercises of memory for her. It was a part of who she was. It was ingrained into her mind. One day I asked myself, what is it that Mabel thinks about all day long? Hour after hour, day after day, week after week, not even able to know if it's day or night. And so I went to Mabel the next day and I said, Mabel, what do you think about all day long as you lay here? I mean, you don't have much on your mind, do you? And, and she responded by saying this, this caught me off guard. Schmidt said, I think about Jesus. And if that wasn't surprising in itself... He then asked her, well, what is it that you think about Jesus? This was even more shocking. I think about how good he's been to me. He's been awfully good to me in my life, you know, she said. I'm one of those kind who's mostly satisfied in Christ alone. I mean, lots of folks around here wouldn't care much for what I think, but I don't care. I'd I'd rather have Jesus, Mabel said. He's all the world to me. And then Mabel broke out into a hymn that went like this. Jesus is all the world to me, my life, my joy, my all. He is my strength from day to day. Without him, I would fall. Is Jesus enough for you? I love what King David said in Psalm chapter 34. He said, taste and see that the Lord is good. Joy awaits those who take refuge in him. And so taste is is an invitation. It's It's a word It describes not only our longing, but what is offered to us when we find ourselves resting in Jesus alone. And so, what we're going to do right now as a church is we're going to do something that we do every week, and that's take communion. And so, if you're serving communion, you may go ahead and uh, prepare for that. You see, communion is a very tangible way for us to taste and, and see that the Lord is good, because when we eat that bread, when we drink the juice, we can be reminded of the better, greater, more sufficient covenant that we've been given access to because of what Jesus did for us in our place. And, and so when we take communion, we don't remember an animal that was sacrificed for us to obtain forgiveness. But we recall when the God of the universe, the sovereign creator over all things, actually came to this dark and broken world and he laid his life down in our place. Why? So that we would be the beneficiaries of this better deal. And so if you were in Christ with us today, then we invite you to take the bread which represents the body of Jesus as it was beaten and tortured and abused as he, as he went through that Roman crucifixion. Drink that cup of juice that, that symbolizes his blood because the Bible tells us that without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sin. And, and so when we eat the bread and we drink the juice, we can be reminded that we have what we need most. And I know that some of us in here, we, we, we aren't yet satisfied and And so could this be a moment for you to begin finding satisfaction in Christ alone? What would that look like for you in your life? And so let's go ahead and take communion together. The band's going to play softly up here. We're going to sing one more song, and then we'll get out of here. But before we do that, we're going to take communion. And before we take communion, let me pray for us, all right? God, it's really easy to stand up here and talk about how satisfaction in you and you alone is what we need. But God, the reality is, it is tough to live that out in a world that offers so many more enticing distractions. And so I thank you, Lord, that you, in your grace and in your goodness, you overlook our faults, you overlook our weaknesses, our sin, and because of the better, lasting covenant that you've established For us, we can walk away never hungering or thirsting again. And and so, Lord, help us every single day to find rest and satisfaction and fulfillment in you and you alone. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.